Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Arakeem. Great to be with you here this afternoon. And today, let's talk about Yom Kippur, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, which falls out on the 10th day of Tishrei. It begins this year on Tuesday evening, the 4th of October, and ends at nightfall at 6.41 p.m. here in Johannesburg on Tuesday, on Wednesday, the 5th of October. Yom Kippur, of course, is the Day of Atonement when God forgives our sins, wipes our slate clean. And for close to 26 hours, we are going to observe this holiest day in five specific ways. Number one, no eating and drinking. Number two, no bathing. Number three, we do not apply any ointments or makeup. You can do so before Yom Kippur begins, but not on the festival itself. So you can do so before candle lighting on Monday, on Tuesday, which is at 5.51 p.m. No wearing of leather shoes and no marital relations. And we refrain from these everyday comforts during this holiday. It reminds us that we can be more than just creatures of impulse that we have to nourish our souls just as we do our bodies. Now, on the 10th of Tishrei, historically, it's the day when God forgave the Jewish people in the wilderness and the desert for the sin of worshiping the golden calf. We all know this famous story of the Chet Egel that takes us back to the generation that received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And not long after this climactic event, many Jews unfortunately engaged in an idolatrous practice. This act, which our sages compared to a bride committing adultery at her wedding, it damaged the relationship between God and the Jewish people. When Moshe Rabbeinu Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he saw this, he broke the two tablets that he just received from God and he pleaded with God then to forgive the Jewish people. So it was on the 10th day of Tishrei, the day that would become Yom Kippur, that God forgave the Jewish people and tasked Moses with preparing another set of tablets that would replace the very first ones. Ever since then, this day Yom Kippur has served as our annual day of atonement when God forgives us for any of our transgressions. And so ever since this day is designated as Yom Kippur, day of atonement, and the day has an energy of purity and forgiveness. Throughout the year, we know we have to beg for forgiveness if you want to atone for our sins. But on Yom Kippur, you don't need to beg. God wants to forgive us. God wants to purify us from all our wrongdoings. And still, though, He does want us to ask. And we do this by sincerely regretting all of our failures, our shortcomings for the past year, and by committing, resolving to improve for the coming year. This is what we do on Yom Kippur. If we don't repent, we turn our backs on the atonement that God offers us on this day. Now, on the face of it, Yom Kippur, when we fast and pray, it could feel like a sad day. But the truth is, it's really a joyful day. After all, what can be happier than the day on which our sins are forgiven? The Baal Shem Tov is said to have once attended a Yom Kippur service where the cantor, the Chazan, chanted the Yom Kippur liturgy to all these joyful melodies. When the Baal Shem Tov asked him, why are you so joyous? The Chazan replied, 
isn't cleaning the royal palace of garbage a joyous occasion? The Baal Shem Tov really appreciated the sentiment of this chazan. My friends, indeed, the Jewish soul is a palace for God. Throughout the year, somehow or other, the palace gets a little bit dirty. But on Yom Kippur, God cleanses our sins. All we need to do is to open the door, to not repent, is to lock that door in God's face as God offers us this opportunity for atonement. Who wants to do that? This is our opportunity to be granted forgiveness from Hashem. And although it's true that you can repent on any day of the year, but this particular period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, known as the Aseret Yimei Teshuvah, is particularly conducive to repentance. That's what it's called. So of these 10 days, Yom Kippur is the most conducive because the day itself represents atonement. Many people understand repentance to mean change, but actually, as you all know, the Hebrew word for repentance is teshuva. And teshuva really means to return. That's what we do on Yom Kippur. We return to our true selves, to who we really are, to our pristine selves, to who we originally were. We all start out with an innocent soul, pure connection with God. Of course, during the duration of our life, we sometimes make mistakes, and when we sin, we sully our purity, we cover up our connection. Teshuva means to remove that cover, to return to our original pristine state. It's much easier to return when we already have, when we're, you know, when we already are to, to something that we never were. On Yom Kippur, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to become somebody who we aren't. All we need to do is to return to our original selves. The connection and purity that we seek is already within us. We just need to uncover it. We just need to return to who we originally are. And it's much easier than we think. Teshuva reframes our whole, the whole concept of sin. Think of a, a couple who perhaps got into some kind of a little faribble, they quarreled with each other. And now they can resolve the differences and enjoy a more intense connection than they ever had before their disagreement because perhaps they worked out those differences. You think of a criminal who experiences true remorse and becomes more honest than who they were before they committed the crime. When they look back, they identify the moment of sin as the beginning of the return. At the time, the quarrel and the crime were terrible, we know. But in retrospect, you could reframe it now. You could see it as the trigger for this incredible growth, this springboard for them to become much better that came from a result from that. And this is why the Talmud says that Teshuvah, when we repent, it completely transforms the sin into a good deed. The Gemara in Yuma describes exactly this. So this is our opportunity now, as we get ready for Yom Kippur, to get into that mode and to find ways that we will prepare ourselves for this holiest day of the year. And that's exactly what our opportunity is now, to transform ourselves, to become better than we were before. It's not becoming a different person. Well, maybe in a sense there is an aspect of becoming better a changed person. In fact, that's what our sages tell us, is the idea behind the concept of, of teshuva, why we merit that our prayer should be answered, should we change the, where we change 
our verdict on this day, it's because we have become a changed person. But it's really going back to who we were to begin with. We'll be right back and discuss some of the ways to get ready practically for Yom Kippur. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 IFM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman, and today we're talking about DIY Yom Kippur, how to do it, make it most meaningful for yourself and your family. And as we discussed, Yom Kippur begins this coming Tuesday, the 4th of October, candle lighting is at 5.51. But of course, we don't just go into Yom Kippur, we prepare for it well in advance, and now is our opportunity to do exactly that. And as you know, the day before Yom Kippur actually itself is considered as a partial holiday, and there are various observances on this day that help us prepare for Yom Kippur. So let's talk about some of these observances, and let's discuss how we can do exactly that. Of course, there are different customs, I'm sharing with you some of them. There may be many others that you're familiar with. Now, one of the famous customs of Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is to perform a ritual called Kaparis. In the early hours of Erev Yom Kippur, we take a live hen for women or a rooster for men, and we read a prayer that you'll find in the Machsar called Kaparis. And there we read how we are going to, of course, we treat uh, here in Johannesburg, it takes place at Torah Academy. There might be other locations too. Where we read the words of the Kaparis prayer. And what we are going to say is, we're asking God that although this is going, this chicken, this, this hen or rooster is going to go, it's going to, we're going to slaughter it. And it will be feeding the unfortunate, the needy in the community. But we, please God, will go for a long, good life. And the custom is that we gently wave the chicken over our head three times, and that's, we should be granted forgiveness. And then the chicken slaughtered, and it is distributed to the poor. So many people also do this with money. There are other ways of doing it. You could take money, wave money over your head. We recite the prayer of the Kaparis and place the money in the tzedakah box and say we're giving this to charity. I would share with you a famous story of somebody once came to the Baal Shem Tov and asked the Baal Shem Tov if he could be part of the Kaparis ritual to watch how the Baal Shem Tov does it. Baal Shem Tov says, you don't want to see mine. Go see the way this particular chassad, a disciple of his, the way he does his Kaparis. This man was an innkeeper. And at the end of the night, early in the wee hours of the morning, after all his customers left, this Jew would take out two ledgers. From the first ledger, he would read, all of the terrible challenges that he faced in the past year, all the difficulties that he experienced from on high. And then he took out another ledger from which he read all of his shortcomings, all of his sins of the past year. And he would say, dear God, please, if you forgive me, I will forgive you. So there's different ways of performing this ritual of Kaparis. I think it's a very powerful and beautiful story illustrating about how our deep relationship, our connection with God is. And that is the point. Yom Kippur, we know atones for all of our sins, but we know that God only forgives transgressions that we committed against, that, that we committed against God. But what about things that we did against others, right? And it's important to ask forgiveness 
in the days leading up to Yom Kippur of anyone who we may have hurt, offended, insulted, or any way we may have harmed them in the past year. This is the lead up to Yom Kippur. And this is an opportune time to sincerely, to genuinely turn to family and friends, think of anyone we may have hurt in any way, and to ask them to please pardon us for what we may have done wrong to them in the past year. It is also important to give charity, extra charity, on Erev Yom Kippur, as we know that it says that with charity you will remove your sin, and in fact, as we read in the Musaf prayer, Utashuva, Utafila, Utsadaka, through charity, prayer, and repentance, CPR, we avert any harsh decrees. And the Talmud teaches us that when we are compassionate to others, then God is in turn compassionate towards us. So be extra generous, be extra philanthropic, caring, kind to others, and please God will merit that God will be extra compassionate to us in this coming year. Talmud teaches that when we eat a festive meal in Erev Kippur, it's actually very meritorious. It's considered as if we fasted on Yom Kippur itself or extended the fast. So it's very important that Erev Yom Kippur, we all eat food. And the meal of Erev Yom Kippur is very important because it gives us the strength, the ability to fast in the, in the hours of Yom Kippur and to, to immerse ourselves into the moments of prayer to be fully present. We usually celebrate days of note with a festive meal. So by eating on Erev Yom Kippur, we are able to fast on Yom Kippur all the more so in a better way. And as much as our Father in Heaven wants us to fast on Yom Kippur, God doesn't want us to suffer. So when we eat well on the day before the fast, then Hashem enjoys it as much as the fast itself as well. So when we are able to begin the Yom Kippur observances on the day before, on Erev Yom Kippur, with this anticipation of atonement that we know that we will have a good verdict, so we celebrate that Erev Yom Kippur and make sure that you have a good, nice meal Erev Yom Kippur. Take the time to enjoy that meal with family and friends. So like this, on Yom Kippur itself, we can have a, a truly immersive and powerful experience. There's a custom on Erev Yom Kippur to ask, to request from a parent or a rabbi or a friend. It's called lekach. It's a piece of honey cake. And that symbolizes our wish for a sweet year. The custom is specifically to ask for the honey cake. Why? So in case it was decreed that we have to, God forbid, resort to any handout during the year, that the decree should be satisfied with this request of Lekach on Erev Yom Kippur. Because Erev Yom Kippur is a festive day, it's customary to wear to wear Yom Tov clothing ready in Erev Yom Kippur. Of course, on Yom Kippur itself, there's a custom to wear white garments, like men wear a kittle, and many women also dressed in white, reminding us of our mortality and our potential for purity. You know, the prophet Yeshayahu says that if your sins will be like red silk, then they will turn white like snow. So this concept, this indicates that white is the color of forgiveness. And that's why the Talmud tells us that there was a red string that was hung above the door of the temple on Yom Kippur, and at some point, that red string would metamorphosize miraculously, it would transform to white. And the people then knew that they were forgiven. So we symbolically wear white to remind us of that. And it's customary actually to wear, to avoid wearing anything that's actually made of gold. Don't wear a gold tie or any gold jewelry because we don't want to evoke the sin of the golden calf 
on this day. So make sure if you have to send your kitzel to the dry cleaners or have it home cleaned, that you take care of that now in the days leading up to Yom Kippur to be properly ready. Of course, before Yom Kippur begins, it's customary to light a 24-hour candle in honor of the Yisker that we're going to recite on Yom Kippur. King Solomon wrote that Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam, the, so, the human soul, is God's candle. It's written in Proverbs and Mishle. So a soul that's called a candle because the flame, a flame is is one of the only things in this world that actually appears to naturally constantly try to climb upward. And so to us, it seems as if, as though the, the, it wants to ascend to the heavens and it's held back by the wick. The soul has this very same idea, this concept in a spiritual sense, that, that the soul recognizes the, the importance of its earthly mission here and knows it has to complete it. But the soul's natural desire is to escape the body, to cleave to Hashem. And when a person passes away, that desire is ultimately fulfilled. So we memorialize our beloved departed ones with a candle. And therefore we light a 24-hour licht, a yisker candle, Erev Yom Kippur. There's many customs of Erev Yom Kippur, immersing in a mikvah, and giving extra tzedakah, and all the things we discussed. And of course, when it, before, just before the fast begins, it's customary for parents to bless their children individually just before Yom Kippur begins. Now, of course, if your children aren't present here, whether they live overseas or for whatever reason they're not present with you, then you could do this by phone or video conference. When we give the bracha in person, it's customary to place our hands over our children's head and to say the traditional blessing, Yasimcha, Lekimcha, Fraimcha, Menasha, to boys, to sons, we, we say that God should make them like a Fraim and Menasha, the sons of Joseph, to girls, we say the words, Yasimech, Lekimcha, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Balea, that God should make them like our matriarch, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. And then we invoke the priestly blessing that Hashem spoke to Moshe, to, that Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying to tell Aaron to instruct his sons, saying, This is how you should bless the children of Israel. And Morlehem say to them, That God should bless you and guard you. That God should make his countenance shine upon you and be gracious to you. That God should turn his countenance toward you and grant you peace. And concluding with the words, that they should, um, that my that my blessing should be bestowed upon you, and this is the traditional blessing. Of course, you can add your own heartfelt wishes to your children as well, and then this is customarily done either just before the candle lighting or right after. But we usher in, like every Jewish holiday, we usher in Yom Kippur with lighting the, the Yom Kippur candles, and it's actually a custom to place a book, ideally a book of Torah or a sitter, on the table, the same table that you're going to be lighting your candles, and it should remain there on the table until at least until nightfall. And this is the way we try to usher in the Yom Kippur a couple of minutes early. You want to add to the observance of Yom Kippur. So even though traditionally you can light all the way up to sunset, but we want to add a little bit 
onto the Yom Kippur observance, so we try to bring it in 18 minutes earlier. After the candles are lit, but before sunset, and very important to try to do so, before the sun sets, men put on their talus and recite the traditional blessing of Leis Atef Betzitzis, which means to wrap ourselves in Betzitzis. If you don't manage to put on your talus before sunset, then don't say that blessing. Now the time of Kol Nidre, which is like the one of the highlight prayers of Yom Kippur, is actually just before the sun sets. So it's time, go to shul, be at shul, make sure you're, th- you're there nice and comfortably, well in advance, and to join the chazan in the Kol Nidre prayer. Kol Nidre is actually, it's a, it's a legal formulation that absolves us of all our vows that we will make in the coming year. And we say it three times, each time a little louder than the previous time, and the chazan will, will lead the congregation in this very soulful prayer. During the Middle Ages, those who wanted to libel Jews, they would point to Kol Nidre to prove that Jews can't be trusted to keep their words. Look, they absolve themselves of their commitments. But the truth is that Kol Nidre is irrelevant to vows that we make to our fellow. It's, you know, those vows, you can never unilaterally just void them. Kol Nidre only annuls vows that don't involve others. For example, a vow to refrain from overeating. It's between ourselves, it's a personal vow. Judaism regards such vows as sacred. Many Jews are careful to avoid taking any vows to begin with. We don't want to, God forbid, not be able to follow through. A vow is sacred. So in case we do take a vow, we're preemptively voiding it on Yom Kippur to ensure that it doesn't result in any violation. Now, in modern times, of course, many people wonder why this, why do we need this whole legal procedure for? You know, why don't we just ask, why, why don't we substitute it perhaps with some kind of a heartfelt prayer for forgiveness? Why is this Kol Nidre initiating the Yom Kippur service? Why is it chanted in such a memorable tune that we're all familiar with? And this, of course, has uh, perhaps induced some creative theories, most famously that it was the conversos, the Jews in Spain, who were forced to to convert to Christianity, but who remained committed in their Judaism, to their Judaism in secret, who composed this prayer. According to this theory, when they would clandestinely gather to pray in Yom Kippur, they felt compelled to begin by annulling their vows, the vows of the Inquisition that would make them pretend to be good Christians. The truth is, there's a lot of theories, but Kol Nidre existed long before the Spanish Inquisition. And none of the early sources that discuss the Kol Nidre prayer mention anything of that sort, that it comes from the Spanish Inquisition. I'm sure the people in the, the Converso Jews said this prayer, but it was an ancient prayer. So it, it's not necessarily connected to them because the prayer existed long before that. So apparently the reason this is the opening prayer of Yom Kippur, is that in Judaism, our word we know is sacred. And if we profane our words by transgressing our vows, we can't use our profane faculty of speech to speak to God. So therefore, before we begin our Yom Kippur service, we annul all those vows in advance to ensure that our speech is pure, that it's unsullied, that we're coming into Yom Kippur 
in the right state of mind. We begin our Yom Kippur service with Kol Nidre precisely because we take our words so seriously. And before our words, before we're using our words on Yom Kippur to ask God to forgive us, to, to beseech God for atonement, we ensure that our oral integrity is clean by annulling our vows. And only after that's achieved, that's when we approach God in prayer. So that's why we open the Yom Kippur service with Kol Nidre. After Kol Nidre, we recite the Bracha Shechianu. We thank God for enabling us to reach this auspicious day. And those who said it at candlelighting will not repeat it now, but make sure that you're going to say the Bracha of Shechianu. And this is the way we usher in Yom Kippur. The so let's talk about some of the differences in the Yom Kippur service of that you know that are different than the rest of the year. One of the things that stands out is that on Yom Kippur, at Shema, we are going to recite the Baruch Shem, Blessed Be Hashem's Glory's name forever and ever. And the reason we say this out loud, which we don't do the rest of the year, is because usually we're going to say it quietly, right? We 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 say Shema out loud. And then the second line, Baruch Hashem, is said quietly in an undertone. But the reason we say it out loud on Yom Kippur is because this prayer, Baruch Hashem, was learned by Moshe Rabbeinu on Mount Sinai. He heard it from the angels as they were praising God with this passage of Baruch Hashem, Kavod Machusai. And later, Moshe Rabbeinu taught this prayer to the Jewish people. But because we, year-round, are not pure like angels, so that's why we say it in an undertone, as if to acknowledge that this is not really a prayer for humans. We're, we're not on that level. But on Yom Kippur, God is granting us forgiveness. We're going to say this prayer out loud to proclaim that on this day, our sins are forgiven. And therefore, on Yom Kippur, we are as pure as the angels. The main difference from an ordinary evening prayer to Yom, to Yom Kippur, other than the reciting out loud, the Baruch Shem will begin in the Amidah, which is the central prayer of each service. So when it comes to Yom Kippur, we are going to recite specific passages. And in fact, we actually start already at Mincha, reciting the al Khait, the confessional prayer. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So during the Amidah, we're going to say al Khait, and there are other parts of the Amidah that, we, that are unique to Yom Kippur. For example, let me, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of actually some of the things we say earlier, I, I went out of order a little bit, is the prayer, Darkecha. Darkecha eloike yinu liharicha apecha l'orayim. Okay, I don't have the voice to sing for you today, but we, we talk about how it's your way, Hashem, that, that God is forbearing towards the wicked. And that is Hashem's praise. Now, why do we praise God for being forbearing, which means that God delays His wrath? Wouldn't it be more effective to ask God to forgive our sins, to cancel His wrath? And the answer takes us back to this concept of teshuva that we talked about before, that the very energy of this day of Yom Kippur atones for our sins, but that's only if we repent. So as night falls and Yom Kippur begins, we're sensitive to our responsibility to do our part. We don't ask God to simply forgive. 
We praise Hashem for having delayed His verdict until Yom Kippur, which gives us the chance to do Teshuvah, to repent. And because we repented, we know that we will be forgiven because the very nature of this day secures atonement from Hashem. And therefore, this is the significance of this particular prayer. There's many other significant prayers. I just want to go a little bit, a little bit more through some of the other aspects and rituals because, you know, that evening, we there's extra Tehillim that's recited. But let's go to Yom Kippur Day and maybe we'll get back to some of the prayers if we have time. A Jew begins each morning with prayer, obviously. But on most days, we pray for a little while, then we move on with our day. There's plenty of work to get done. But in Yom Kippur, we're praying for most of the day. We take a few breaks as necessary, but our primary occupation in Yom Kippur is prayer. So there's a lot of prayers at the beginning that are just, you know, similar to a regular day. But like I said, it's at the Amidah where the Yom Kippur service becomes unique. And you'll notice the lengthy confessional that we that we say both at night and by day, Al-Chait, and it's actually recited numerous times throughout the Yom Kippur service. And it's important, actually, in fact, in the Chabad custom, we recite Al-Chait 10 times over the course of Yom Kippur. We start once at Mincha before Yom Kippur, once before Kol Nidre, twice during each of the services. So we say it twice in Mayrev, twice in Shacharis, twice in Musaf, and twice in Mincha of Yom Kippur. So this confessional prayer is actually recited 10 times throughout the Yom Kippur service. And as we recite each line of this confessional prayer, we actually strike the left side of our chest where the Yetzirah, the evil inclination resides within our heart, as if to say, How, why did I listen to my evil inclination? So we give ourselves a, a gentle clap on our, our, above our hearts. Our sages taught that teshuva without verbal confession is actually incomplete. Rambam talks about this concept that you have to verbalize. There's something about hearing ourselves articulate our sins that makes them real for us and brings them to, into, into sharp relief. So every sin, of course, has a body and a soul. The body is the action and the soul of the sin is the desire that we lust after that sin. So when we're asking Hashem to forgive us, it requires that charata, remorse, Remorse atones for the soul of the sin, but we need an action to atone for its body. And when we're verbalizing it, the movement of our lips and the striking of our chest, that's atoning for the sin's action as explained at a great length in Likuti Torah by the Alter Rebbe. Now ordinarily, it's considered arrogant to confess our sins out loud. We don't, we don't say our, our sins out loud. And Tehillim, in chapter 32, King David says, it's not about, you know, announcing about what the sins we, we committed. And this is something on Yom Kippur that we do. You know, obviously year-round we should admit our wrong and, and seek forgiveness for anything that we did, especially if it's a, to a fellow human being. But on Yom Kippur we're saying a whole list of sins. Many of them are things we probably never even committed. But because it's a generic rather than individual confession, and we're saying it together because we want forgiveness for each other. Maybe there's a sin you didn't commit, but somebody else did. And we take responsibility for each other. So we're going to chant it aloud so nobody's embarrassed about what they did or didn't do. We're announcing all the sins aloud as if we all committed them because at the end of the day, 
All Jews are responsible for each other, and therefore we're going to actually say this out loud. Now, of course, you might ask why we confess for sins that we may never even committed. But obviously, if we're responsible for each other, then we have to know that we're going to announce these things. But even more so, there's this idea that maybe in a subtle way we did commit the sin. Maybe we haven't actually stolen a physical item, but maybe we misused somebody's private information. Maybe we might have misled somebody about something and that's considered Gnevastas, um, you know, stealing somebody's knowledge. And also, we, we know that uh, on this day, our souls overshower, overshadow our bodies. And though we each have separate bodies, our souls are common sparks from the same God. So the sins that mar one Jew's soul mar all of our souls and when we confess a single unit when we're doing it together as one entity as one people we speak not only for our individual selves but also for our collective selves and therefore we're going to say this all together we announce we say it aloud as if we're taking responsibility for each other we'll be right back IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi, FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kivan. And we're going through the Yom Kippur service and just talking about a few ideas before we talk about why we confess our sins aloud. Talking about maybe there's a subtle way that we may have committed some of these sins or the fact that a very idea that we take responsibility for each other. There's so much to talk about. Let's just go through a few more ideas. The Torah reading for Yom Kippur describes the Yom Kippur service that took place in the temple in Jerusalem. And the highlight of the service was the Kohen Gadda, the high priest, entering the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kedashim. The holiest room in the world was accessed by the holiest person in the nation on the holiest day of the year. And so in Shul, we're going to read the Torah and we're going to describe exactly that service that took place in the temple back in days of yore. After the Torah reading, we recite Yisker. Yisker is the memorial prayer that we say for our beloved departed, and it's recited four times a year on Yom Kippur, on Shemini Atzeret, on the last day of Pesach, and on the second day of Shavuos in Diaspora. Now the word Yisker, of course, means to remember. In this prayer, we beseech God to remember favorably the souls of our departed beloved ones on this day, on our to, to, to any of our relatives, and we pledge to give tzedakah in their honor after Yom Kippur. So it's important if you're thinking about which part of the Yom Kippur service to be at, certainly to try to be in shul for, Yom, for Yisker. You know, Yom Kippur is a day of atonement, not only for the living, but it's also for those who have passed on. Ganeden, paradise, is comprised of many dimensions and levels to which the soul continually ascends. And the extent of its ascent in the coming year is actually determined on Yom Kippur. And this determination is mostly shaped by the actions that the deceased did in their lifetime in this world. But we, their survivors, can intervene and positively influence the deceased judgment on Yom Kippur by us doing good deeds on their behalf. And that's why it's so important that we go to shul on Yom Kippur, particularly for Yisker, because a soul cannot perform mitzvahs in the afterlife. It's only here in this world that we're able to actually do mitzvahs. So the only way the soul could receive the merit of a mitzvah is if we, their survivors, their children, their grandchildren, their relatives, perform a mitzvah on their behalf. 
And this merit is the most potent tool for a soul's atonement and elevation on Yom Kippur. You know, doing mitzvahs on behalf of the neshama is not only about helping it ascend, but it's also about helping it have a stake in the physical world even after it's passed on. The neshama, the soul knows that the most important contribution we can make is to make what's called a dira batachtonim, a dwelling place for God here on earth. And a soul's distressed that it can't have that impact in the physical world on its own after it's passed on. But when we perform mitzvahs on its behalf, we're enabling the soul to take part in elevating this world, even though the soul's no longer here in this world. And this is especially true regarding mitzvahs that are done by the children on behalf of the departed parents. So when we recite Yisker and we pledge to give tzedakah in honor of our beloved departed loved ones, we are bringing merit to their souls and we're facilitating the elevation to higher and greater levels in the hereafter. So make sure on Yom Kippur that you are in shul for the Yisker service. And of course, after Yom Kippur, make sure to make good on your pledge. Following the Yisker service will be Musaf. Musaf, this is probably the longest Musaf of the year. And Chazan leads the congregation in very moving, very, very moving um, service of the Musaf. What makes the Musaf so long on Yom Kippur is the Avoda. The Avoda is a fundamental section of the Yom Kippur Musaf service where it's true that before, during the Torah reading of the day, we, we describe the Yom Kippur service as it took place in the temple. But in the Avodah, we go through a step-by-step description of every aspect, from the Keturahs, the incense, and the Karbanas, the offerings, and the prayers, and the ceremonies, and the rituals. And this is followed by a series of supplications, and we beg Hashem that the temple be rebuilt, and we conclude with the recitation of, of the Al-Khayt, of the same confessional prayer that we described earlier. And we describe all the different aspects of how the temple service took place. And you know, just imagine stepping into the Holy of Holies, God's own space. Right? Here there's only space for God. It's the temple. How, how, do you, how can you step in? And the answer is that in God's room, you don't take up space. You realize that but for God, there is nothing and we are part of that nothingness. This utter surrendering and complete merging with the infinite, that's what remained with the high priest as he stepped out. And by gazing upon his face, the people were uplifted as well. And from this standpoint of utter oneness, there's, there's no room for sin because sin is a separation between ourselves and God. When the people came to this realization, God responded, and forgave the people for their sins. Now, of course, today, although we can't experience this in a very tangible level, we can recognize that we merge with God today on a spiritual level. And if we read about it during the Musaf Avoda service, we visualize these events, we can relive them. And that's the purpose of reading the Avoda during the Musaf service. So that's why the Musaf of Yom Kippur is so long, but after that, it's appropriate that we take a break, take some time to rest up. If there is time, many shuls don't get that chance and we rest up between Mincha, between Musaf and Mincha and Yom Kippur. You could utilize that time to recite extra Tehillim, to do some extra reading about the significance of Yom Kippur. 
Mashal, I usually give a shear during this time so we could be a little bit more inspired. And then we go into Mincha. The Yom Kippur service and Yom, um, the Mincha Yom Kippur service is quite unique and usually done about an hour and a half or so before before sunset. So at Mashal, we call it for 4.30. And we start with the Torah reading and then it's followed by a very significant Haftorah, which we know tells the story of the prophet Yonah. Yonah was prophet sent by God to tell the people of Nineveh, Nineveh somewhere located near modern-day Mosul, that God would destroy their city unless they repented. For various reasons, Yonah did not want to relay this prophecy. So, the story in short we know is that Yonah boarded a ship for a distant land, but a terrible storm struck, and Yonah understood that he was at fault for the storm. And he urged the sailors, he said, throw me overboard, and they listened, they did that. The story goes, everyone loves the story of Yonah, how he was swallowed up by a fish. And three days later, he was spat out by the fish and deposited on the shores of Nineveh. And Yonah did what he was supposed to. He went to the people and he told them his prophecy and encouraged them to repent. And in fact, they did and they were saved. So this story that we read on Yom Kippur reminds us of several things, in fact. Firstly, we know we can't flee from God. Wherever we may go, God's already there, like in the story of Yonah. We can't ignore our sins. Like the people of Nineveh, we have to do teshuva, we have to repent, otherwise we know there are consequences. And thirdly, as we saw in the story of Nineveh, that the teshuva that they did, the repentance canceled the terrible decree. And if God could forgive the people of Nineveh, who were not known to be the most righteous people, in fact, ultimately they were the people who caused the destruction of the temple for such wicked people to be forgiven, then certainly God will forgive us, his dear children. So remember, it's an important and beautiful haftarah and worthwhile to be present, to be there, and to be there for that moment where we ask God for forgiveness. And we ask Hashem to bring us back, and we say, Bring us back to you, God, and we will return to you. You know, think about this. There's, there's two conflicting ideas. One is this verse, which I actually say on Tisha God should bring us back and we'll return, which implies that God must make the first move to bring us back. And then what do we say? We recite the words of the prophet Malachi, return to me and I shall return to you, which implies that we have to make the first move. Our sages taught that first, you know, the, the, the verse, Hashiveinu Hashem Elecha, that God should return to us. That's our demand of Hashem. And then we read Hashem's demand of us. Hasidus explains this means that God wants us to be inspired to turn to Him. And when that happens, Hashem pledges to give us much more inspiration than we can generate on our own. On the other hand, we know how hard it is to reverse course on our own. So we beg Hashem to make that first move, to inspire us to return. And the truth is that both occur at the same time. For the moment we make a move towards Hashem, immediately Hashem showers us with abundance of inspiration to ascend higher than we could have ever imagined. So this is our opportunity, Yom Kippur, to do exactly that. And then on Yom Kippur, we add a fifth service, the final service of the day called Ne'ilah. Just, you know, like many distance runners get that second win towards the end of their run on Yom Kippur. I know certainly at the very end, as exhausted as it might be, as the Chazan, as the Rabbi, as the Bakara is doing everything, there's just the second win. 
feel revitalized on Yom Kippur as the sun begins to slip past the horizon. And in the closing moments of Yom Kippur, we're going to pray Ne'ilah. And during this service, we seek to complete our Yom Kippur journey by expressing in prayer the deep oneness with God that is available to us at this very special time. So this prayer, Ne'ilah, the fifth service of Yom Kippur, according to Judaism, our divine soul, the highest level of our neshama, the Yechida, is in full, in full blossom, so to say. There's five levels of the soul. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chai, Yechida. Nefesh symbolizes our actions. Ruach is our emotion. The Neshama is the intellect. The Chai is the will. But Yechida is the highest level of the soul, which we don't always, we're not always in, in tune with it. And this deepest level of our soul, which transcends our conscious psyche, and it's not regularly experienced on Yom Kippur, especially at this moment of Ne'ilah, we feel as a part of God. You know, during most of our lives, our conscious mind's experiences, you know, we, we have a degree of, of, of separation from God. On Yom Kippur, at this moment, during the final moments of the sacred day, there's this sh- fundamental shift that occurs. Our Yechida, this highest level of our soul, the oneness with God, shines through. And we can become conscious of our inherent unity with God. And so we pray the fifth service of the day, which corresponds to the Yechida, at this very conclusion, at the very end of Yom Kippur. And notice that in this prayer, we no longer ask God to inscribe us for a good year, but rather we say that God should seal us for a good year. And that indicates that these are the final moments of the Day of Judgment. And so, at this time of Ne'ilah, we, we we have a special prayer, we have various specific um, aspects of the Ne'ilah service, just to point out a few as we have to conclude. The climactic finale of Ne'ilah is when we declare three potent statements. Number one, we say, Shema. We say that one time, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elekeinu Hashem Echot. Here Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. This verse, which is probably the, the most fundamental prayer of a, in, in Judaism. So many Jews, regardless of their involvement with Judaism, recognize these words. Children are taught it from the time that they could speak. And it's traditionally the last words that a person says before they pass away. And so at this moment of Ne'ilah, when we could sense a deep oneness with Hashem, the fact that so many of our ancestors sacrificed so much for God, it really finds a particular resonance at this particular moment. And when the Shema's recited, we should concentrate on our readiness to give up our soul for Hashem. And God will consider it as if we actually did give up our soul for Hashem. So then we say three times the verse, Baruch Shem Kvod Malchus Blessed be the name of Hashem's glorious kingdom forever and ever, which we discussed that on this day, we are like angels with a completely clean slate. So we recite this verse aloud, although the rest of the year we say it in an undertone. And the Talmud teaches that when Yaakov Avinu's 12 sons, that the, the progenitors of the tribes of Israel, when they declared their faith in God by reciting the Shema, Yaakov expressed his happiness by reciting this very verse of the angels. So this verse as well, we, we say it three times out loud, and we repeat this phrase to offer thanks that we continue living by this Jewish tradition, that we will pass this along to our children, to the very next generation. And then we say the words, Hashem Hu Aleikim, God, Hashem is our God, seven times. 
And this verse was rooted in the event that occurred in the times of Eliyahu and Navi. At that time, many of the Jews sadly practiced a mix of, of Judaism and polytheism, and they, they adopted various idolatrous practices from the surrounding nations. And one day, Eliyahu and Navi arranged this major showdown with the leaders of the Baal, those who worship the Baal, and he demonstrated that Hashem is a true God. And he said to them, don't, you know, why are you vacillating on two sides? So we make this proclamation each year at the closing of Yom Kippur to underscore that we too will endeavor to keep our Judaism pure. And so the Chabad custom we know is to conclude with a beautiful tune, Napoleon's March, expressing our confidence that our Teshuvah has been accepted and that we will be inscribed, please God, for a good year in both a physical and a spiritual sense. And so we conclude Yom Kippur with blasting the shofar with one great, one giant tekiah gedola. And this notifies, of course, telling people that, you know, it's nightfall and the, the fast is over now. But it also has that symbolism that a sound of triumph, like armies who return from a victory by sounding trumpets and horns. And we proclaim that this evening is a holiday and that we will celebrate it with a lavish meal and a happy heart. And we say the words, Lashana Haba'a Birushalayim next year in Jerusalem. After you conclude the Ne'ilah service, we dive make Havdalah, and then we get straight to work because we want to build the sukkah. We want to go straight into a straight into the next mitzvah, into the next festival. So we get straight to work and moving from one mitzvah to the next. Please God, indeed, we will all be signed and sealed for a good, sweet year. Wishing you all well over the fast, a meaningful, purposeful, and splendid Yom Kippur.